What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. I think we can create a better version of business and a better version of capitalism, one that has social outcomes and environment outcomes very much to the fore and does not pursue money over everything else. I think that's basically the weakness of our current system that's got us to where we are. Hello, and welcome to How to Lead a Sustainable Business. I'm Alana Weston, chairman of Selfridges Group, and I believe that sustainability will be the next big disruptor of my industry. It must be placed at the heart of business strategy if we're to overcome the climate crisis and transition to a cleaner and more just economy. Through this podcast, we'll learn what it takes to make change happen. We'll hear from the transformers, and the innovators, those who've taken existing companies and redesigned their business models, and those who've started something new. This week, I'm joined by Dale Vince, someone who's always pushed the boundaries of conventional wisdom. A former New Age traveler, he founded Ecotricity, the world's first green energy company in 1996, decades before it became mainstream. He went on to bring his maverick thinking to the sports industry when he became chairman of the Forest Green Rovers Football Club. Today, their stadium is not only carbon neutral, but completely vegan. Now he's looking to create diamonds for mining the sky. His book, Manifesto, How a Maverick Entrepreneur Took on British Energy and Won, is part biography and part blueprint for the future of the planet. And his podcast, Zero Carbonista, explores the biggest issues surrounding the climate crisis. Dale, welcome to How to Lead a Sustainable Business. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you left school at 15 to become a new age traveler and live off the grid. You said in your book you were looking for another way to live. How has living an alternative lifestyle informed your approach to environmental issues and also to the way you run your business? I had a few years in between leaving school before I hit the road. And yeah, absolutely. It was about trying to find another way to live. You know, I I wasn't enamored at all with the idea of careers and mortgages and, and all the things that school tries to prepare you for. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I wanted to have the space to find out for myself. And I'd always been concerned about the environment since I was a kid. So living on the road kind of brought me closer to those issues, really. 
you very much face your own consumption, your own needs, you know, particularly in the winter when there's not a lot of daylight around. We didn't have electric lights, and so we'd use the daylight hours to collect wood and water and things like that, the things that we would need during the night. And then start again the next day. So a very kind of basic subsistence kind of lifestyle. It very much in tune with the weather. I would say it brought me closer to the natural environment and to a, a kind of basic way of living. I can imagine. So then tell us how that led on to building your first windmill. I think it was in um, 1996. I mean, at that time, it was a mad thing to do. Yeah, and it was even more mad for me to do it, really. I just spent 10 years living this nomadic lifestyle. And during that period, I'd built a lot of different things that I lived in and drove around in and became a very self-sufficient person. And at the end of the 10 years, I was using little windmills to power my trailers and my life. And I was living on a hill outside of Stroud in the early 90s, actually, when I saw the first wind farm built in Britain down in Cornwall. And I popped down to see the farmer and had a chat with him. And I was really enthused by them. And I just felt that I could spend another 10 years living this low impact lifestyle personally, or I could drop back in and try to make a change, a bigger change uh, by building a, a big windmill on the hill I lived on. And it was an epiphany for me, really. I just thought, well, let's do that then. It took five years all the way up until 1996 to get that done. And really, that's because, you know, I came at it with nothing, no training, no money, no qualifications, no track record. And did you ever think you'd go on to build at least 70 of them? I think you have now. I never looked past the first one for probably the first three or four years. And then as the date for installing this first big windmill approached, I could see it was going to happen. And I went to see our local power company to see if they wanted to buy a new kind of electricity, green electricity, didn't exist at that time. And um, they laughed at the idea because they were monopoly buyers and they offered a rubbish price for it. But it was just at the time that the market was liberalizing and I was aware that it was possible to become an energy company. And so it was 1995 when I decided to do that and formed Ecotricity. We are the world's first green energy company as a result of that. And that's when it all really kind of began to motor. It was in order to build more windmills that I realized I needed to get a fair price for the energy from the end user and cut out the middleman, the big power companies. So disruptive at such an early stage. What other challenges did you face when you were starting out? And who supported you and who told you you were crazy and it wouldn't catch on? Everybody thought I was crazy. Nobody thought it would work. And I would say the biggest challenges were that lack of credibility, lack of money. But I just did it all one piece at a time, really. And so what advice would you give to somebody who has an idea like that to take it piece by piece and step by step? Or do you need a grand vision? What I learned is that you can't always see the solution. So, you know, I could see all of the problems. They didn't just appear one at a time. I could see them all at the beginning, but I dealt with them in the order that they needed dealing with. So I would say you can't always see the answer. It doesn't matter. Keep plugging away. And quite often you'll solve the problem. That's really helpful. I would say innovation has been one of the keys to your success. On the other hand, in your book, you say we already have the technology we need to meet our climate targets. If we have the technology, what else is needed? We have to accept change, and that's a challenge for people typically. But I think the biggest thing we need is for the government to change the playing field. 
So at the moment, it's skewed towards the old way of doing things, burning fossil fuels and intensive animal agriculture. These are the twin drivers of the climate crisis and all of the ecological crises we face. And of course, intensive animal farming is also the root cause of zoonotic viruses like the coronavirus that we're suffering still. But the the economy that we work within is currently geared to the old way of doing things. So we put vast amounts of financial support into fossil fuels, for example, but not renewable energy and into animal farming, but not into plants. We tax the good things and we don't tax the bad things. And, uh, you know, there's just a whole raft of simple things the government could do to make it more economic and more attractive to do the things we need to do to fight the climate crisis. You make it so simple. And um, I mean, you've said in your book that conventional wisdom is an oxymoron. (laughs) And (laughs) I love that because um, so many business people find it hard to convince their organization that sustainability can be profitable. How do you overturn established beliefs? The best way is by doing um, we've reached a point, Ecotricity, where we've got a great track record in doing stuff. And perhaps paradoxically, we're kind of moving into a talking about it phase now, talking about the stuff we've done and what we can see needs to be done. There's also a greater need in the world as well and a greater focus on sustainable issues. But I think showing by doing is the most powerful way to convince people that something works. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do with this podcast, introduce a wider audience to people who've actually done it, because I think it gives people a lot of confidence and hope that it's possible. So in your early life, you were a bit of a rule breaker. And in your book, you say that the rules of business are not like the laws of physics. They are man-made and can be remade. How would you make those rules? I would not make it possible to run a business that is focused solely on the making of money. Because I think when that's your sole focus, you make bad decisions and you generate bad outcomes for the people around you and for the environment around you. I think that business and capitalism per se are not bad things. I think we just have bad versions of them and we could create better versions. So, you know, at Ecotricity, we're a mission-led business. We care about the people that work with us. We care about our customers and all of the people that we partner with. And, you know, we act decently and reasonably towards everybody. We don't exist to make money. We exist for a purpose, which is to bring about sustainability. And I think we can create a better version of business and a better version of capitalism, one that has social outcomes and environment outcomes very much to the fore and does not pursue money over everything else. I think that's basically the weakness of our current system that's got us to where we are. website on the Ecotricity website, you have a section on greenwashing, which I found interesting. And how possible is it for incumbent companies to truly transform or even disrupt themselves? And what conditions can influence the pace of that change? I think it's a great question because we're seeing a lot of this happen right now. And I find myself increasingly saying to people who are more on my side of the debate and my side of life, we need to encourage these big companies to make a change. You know, this week I posted something about Burger King committing or saying that they think they'll have a 50% plant-based menu by 2030. I'm saying that's a great thing. And there's lots of people on what I would consider to be my side of the debate saying, how can you support Burger King? And I'm saying, I'm not supporting Burger King actually per se, but I am supporting this or celebrating it because 
these big companies aren't going to go away, whether it's a food company, oil company, or a car company. We can't wish them away. What we need to do is to encourage them to change their business. And that way we get to the end goal quicker as well. And more certainly, we won't get there otherwise. Another facet of this online debate this week for me is the motivation of Burger King. I actually don't care what the motivation is, but I know it's not about animals. It's not about human health. It's not about the climate. It's about what their customers want. They know there's a rising demand for vegan options and they need to provide that to stay in business. And that's a very powerful motivator for businesses. Can you tell us a story of how you've seen consumer demand change, for example, maybe in the football club? What triggers it? Or is it more of a gradual journey, do you think? You know what? I think choice and availability is one of the biggest drivers. So if I take you back to 1995, I came up with the idea of green electricity. The big power company I spoke to literally laughed at the idea and they said, what is it and who wants it? And I said, look, nobody wants it right now because they can't have it. It's not available, but I'm going to make people want it by making it available. And that's what we've done. And green energy now is like the dominant force in the energy industry globally. We've got nearly 50% of our electricity in Britain now made from renewable energy. When I started, it was from modern renewables. It was nothing. For me, it's a bit like uh, vegan food in McDonald's or Burger King. If it's there, people can buy it. Greg's have seen that. They put out a vegan sausage roll, super popular. They now have a whole bunch of other vegan options. But if it's not there, people can't choose it. So we made it available with green energy. We've seen it come with electric cars. And we've experienced all of this within the world of football. We made vegan food available to football fans for the first time. And that was a culture shock. But, you know, they've embraced it. Our fans have. It's changed the lives of many of them who've gone veggie or vegan themselves. And it's had an enormous influence on the world of sport globally. We find that giving information to people is always the key thing to do, the mm. first thing to do. We always explain not just what we're doing, but why we're doing it. And then we let people make their own minds up. Tell me a little bit more about what you're doing to use sport as a kind of ambassador for green thinking. I think you've got a huge audience there that you can talk to. We came into football accidentally, as I described in my book, and in the process, we built a green football club and we knew that we wouldn't be preaching to the choir. And that became part of the appeal for us. Next thing we know, the UN were knocking on the door about three years ago, saying that they were planning a global program to do the stuff that Forest Green had done. And, you know, would we go and join a panel of people to help scope this and, and stuff like that? So we became a founding signatory of the program called Sport for Climate Action. And the, the purpose of the program is to reach sports fans. And that's billions of people around the world and to get them to change how they live. I mean, I think that's just so important because I think the world of of environmentalism risks preaching to itself. Yes. And I think that was what was fantastic about, I guess, David Attenborough and Greta is that they brought it to a bigger audience. But still, they're the nature lovers and the kids. So how do you get it to a much wider audience? And sport seems like a great, great route. Absolutely. Sport has been fantastic and successful beyond our wildest dreams, you know. And as a football club, we've got like supporter groups popping up all over the world, a hundred of them in 20 different countries. And they're bonded with the club because of our stance on the environment. And, and most recently, we've moved into a new frontier. So we've teamed up with the Daily Express. We persuaded them to launch a Green Britain campaign, which is quite an improbable thing to achieve. But they've properly bought into it. And the idea is to communicate to their audience which is not my natural audience you know i had a lot of people say to me what are you doing working with the daily express 
And it's exactly the point you just made. There is no point us communicating within our echo chambers. We've got to talk to other people. You know, we have to reach the mass of people in Britain that don't get it currently. And we need them to get it and to actually own it, to part own this mission of a green Britain. That's the only way we're going to get there. So we're working with the Daily Express. The Sun have seen it. They've upped their game. And what we've got now is right wing papers in Britain competing for green kudos, which is incredible. Lobbying number 10 and number 11. And I think it's quite something when the government are hearing this from the right wing newspapers. I think they'll take more notice of that than they will here it from me. I think you're probably right. And it's uh, it's something we saw actually with Project Ocean, which was that the whole idea was to talk to the fashion audience about fish, which was a little nerve wracking for a lot of people in our business. But it worked because they were fascinated and they became engaged really quickly and then held us to account on other stuff like where the fashion actually comes from. And they said, you know, it's great talking about the fish, but can you tell us something more about other things that you make and sell? And so I think there's this really nice exchange that you get with the audience where they Mm. feed back to you Mm. more about what they'd like to know or more about the products they'd want to have. What kind of feedback or ideas have you had from your customers, either in the electricity space or, or in sport? I guess the best example I've got is our Devil's Kitchen It began as a program to make plant-based school dinners for primary kids, and it's been so phenomenally successful. It's gone through secondary education universities. It's plant-based food. We make it in a little factory that's powered by the wind and the sun. And, uh, you know, we just get to, I don't know, set a new standard, I think. I guess the most recent was we launched our coffee shirt. I don't know if you saw that at the Forest Green Rovers. This is a shirt made out of old coffee grounds. And um, it's a kind of uh, escalation of the previous shirt, which was made out of bamboo. This is us looking for more sustainable materials. And uh, we landed on coffee grounds, which is more sustainable because it's recycled. And actually, it's more breathable than bamboo, which was a surprise to me. And then we had a bunch of people on social media saying, well, can I get some cycling shorts and cycling equipment made out of this new coffee material? What else sparks your creative process? Because it feels to me that you've just got idea after idea and you're bringing them to market. I've got a restless mind, which I think helps, you know, I explore scenarios and ideas kind of uh, without thinking about it, really. Our biggest, most recent, most exciting, crazy invention was Sky Diamonds. And that just came about through me having a kind of uh, thought doodle around how can we get carbon out of the atmosphere and and if we do what do we do with it it needs locking up permanently and and just the idea that diamonds are the most permanent form of carbon that we know of and wouldn't it be amazing if we can make diamonds from excess carbon dioxide i mean that just blows me away the idea of diamonds from the sky because it's so poetic at the same time as being incredibly practical can you tell us a bit about how it's done or is that a trade secret it's modern alchemy and I love it for that as you say it's I mean it's evocative isn't it it really is exciting and a little bit exceptional we've created a process that's not just low carbon or zero carbon it's actually carbon negative and and I think it's the first industrial process in the world to be like this the air that we put back into the atmosphere is cleaner than the air that we take out so we're powered only by the wind and the sun 
We capture rainwater and we split it to make hydrogen. We capture carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere. We combine that with the hydrogen to make methane. And then we feed a cocktail of those three gases into something we call the diamond mill. It's a little ball of plasma running more or less at the temperature of the surface of the sun size of a loaf of bread within which we can grow about 14 diamonds at a time and and that's it simple as that just like that <laughs> you described yourself and your team in the early days as irreverent fun loving and pursuing something <laughs> we believed in i mean how have those qualities informed the culture of your company and how important do you think they are to your success they're really important to me i think um it's important not to take things too seriously it's absolutely important not to pursue money and definitely not to put it before people and the environment. As you say, it's about authenticity. A lot of companies and brands try hard to be something that they're not. We never try to be anything. We just are who we are, comfortable with what we do and why we do it and how we do it. You know, it's easy for us because we're not trying. I love that idea. Not trying is, is the best way to get things done. For our quick fire round. Dale, what's your definition of sustainability? The ability to do it forever. Is there such a thing as sustainable growth? I believe there is. And I know that people on the kind of green side of life say, you know, we can't have endless growth. The planet can't sustain that. And I get that. And that's a fact. And yet there's an awful lot of scope for sustainable growth right now because we have so little sustainability in our economy. And if we undo the damaging growth that we've had, then we create an enormous space for sustainable growth. What's most important, customer demand, legislation or innovation? Right now, I think it's legislation because we've got the other two. Who will help us reach our climate goals fastest, the disruptors or the transformers? I'm not sure what the definition of each of those is. Is a transformer a big company in a conventional industry that changes? Then it's yeah. them. We've needed the disruptors to seed the debate and create the technological drive. Right now, we need the transformers to take over and do the heavy lifting. What three things are you hoping will come out of COP26? I hope that we get serious national targets. You know, what we have at the moment are not good enough. They won't meet the temperature requirements. I hope we get a more joined up world approach to the problem. And I hope we get real action here in Britain. There's a chance that our government will go into COP wanting to create a bit of a halo effect and they'll land some green policies. I hope we get that. What three things are essential to leading a sustainable business? I think you have to be fair to everybody. That's so important. Justice is important. Focus is important and not obviously to focus on money. If you want sustainability, that's the best ingredient to have because then you'll go out and you'll do it in the right way. Dale Vince, thank you so much for coming on to How to Lead a Sustainable Business. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do take a moment to subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. This episode was brought to you by Selfridges Group and Intelligence Squared. It was edited by Debbie Kilbride 
with technical assistance from Mark Roberts. The executive producer was Farah Jasset. I'm Alana Weston, and this is How to Lead a Sustainable Business. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.